like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as we make our way through this letter, the Apostle Paul penned to the church in Corinth right around A.D. 55. Uh, We are in the middle of chapter 10, so I'd like to begin reading in verse 23 down to uh, chapter 11, verse 1. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. For indeed, it testifies to us concerning the work of your Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we ask, Lord, as your word is proclaimed, that you would grant to us faith and knowledge and understanding of what Christ has done for us. And we ask this in his name. Amen. USDA certified, grass-fed, free-range, organic. Those are some of the things that you might notice on labels as you go to the grocery store in order to shop for meat or poultry. But I guarantee you that none of you, having gone to either Whole Foods or Costco or Vons, have ever come across a label on your meat package that says, sacrificed to idols. And as I read to you the passage today, as the Apostle Paul continues to discuss this topic of meat that had been sacrificed to idols, and whether it's appropriate for Christians to eat that meat or not, perhaps some of you would think, well, this doesn't really apply to us. Here we see that us as 21st century Americans, uh, we are dealing with issues that are far different than what those Christians living in the first century dealt with. Well, I hope that we have seen, for those of you that have been with us uh, throughout these uh, last several chapters, I hope you've noticed that this is much bigger than just the topic of meat. As we'll see in our passage today, the things that the Apostle Paul tells us have to do not just with eating meat, but with the entirety of our lives. You see, the Apostle Paul began addressing this topic of meat offered to idols all the way back in chapter 8, verse 1. 
And it was actually a letter that the Corinthians had sent to him where they had brought up various issues in the church. And one of the issues was whether it was okay for them to eat meat offered to idols. But you really, you get the sense very quickly that they weren't asking the Apostle Paul if it was okay for them to eat meat offered to idols. They were telling him. And they were saying, look, Paul, we all have knowledge. We know that idols don't really exist. That the, God, the so-called gods that they are apparently sacrificing to, they're figments of their imagination. And so some people in Corinth were using that so-called knowledge in order to justify not just eating meat offered to idols, but eating it within the precincts of the pagan temples. They would go to the sacrifices and get a free meal and get the, the social elements out of it, all the while thinking, well, it doesn't really exist, and so therefore I'm not engaging in idolatry. Well, here the Apostle Paul comes to the end of his treatment of, of, of this topic, where he sums up his main points, gives some practical advice, and then finally offers his own life as a tangible example of what it looks like to live a life after the mind of Christ. And so he begins by quoting maybe a slogan that the Corinthians had repeated time and time again in verse 23, where he says, all things are lawful. You may recall he quoted this slogan back in chapter 6, verse 12. This slogan that the Corinthians were saying, all things were lawful, is basically a way of saying, I can do whatever I want. No doubt twisting the Apostle Paul's teaching that we are no longer under the law as a covenant of works and free from the law in that sense, they were twisting it to to justify any and all sort of behavior. Back in chapter 6, they were saying we could do whatever we want with regard to sexual immorality. And here they're saying that they could do whatever they want with regard to idolatry. This saying, all things are lawful or all things are permissible, is ultimately the saying of the antinomian, the one who lives without regard to the law of God. And yet, even when the Apostle Paul in chapter 9 says, I am not under the law, he says, I am still under the law of Christ. That is the law of love, to love God as well as to love neighbor. And so that's why the Apostle Paul can respond to their slogan by saying, well, yeah, all things are not helpful. And then ultimately, not all things build up. You see, all of our actions should be for edification. The main theme, the main idea here is what about the other person? How how do your actions affect your fellow believer in Christ? Do they build them up or do they tear them down? And this idea of edification uh, began back in chapter 8 where he said, uh, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love edifies. And that whole theme is going to continue beyond the topic of meat offered to idols into the topic of worship as we begin to see how all of our actions should be motivated by love as well as concern for our neighbor in order to build them up. And so that's why the Apostle Paul uh, repeats this, this premise in verse 24 when he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Christianity is not about you. It's about others. Christ calls us to live lives uh, that are con- that where we are considered consider about other people. Jesus Christ himself did not come to be served, but to serve. And now so should we. 
The Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, let, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And then in Philippians chapter 2, in talking about the mind of Christ that all of us as believers should have, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. To paraphrase JFK, ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. That's how Christ calls us to live our lives, to not think about ourselves, not have egocentric living, but to think about others. And so uh, Paul, after uh, uh, giving the, the underlying premise, this is how each of us should live our lives, thinking about others, not about ourselves. He then goes on to offer practical advice, which may surprise us. He says in verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the marketplace. Now, the context here is that when meat was offered to idols in the pagan temples, some of the meat would go to the priest and those that worked in the temple. Uh, The rest of the meat would be eaten by the one who offered the sacrifice and his guests. But then sometimes there would be even more leftover meat, and that meat would then be sold in the marketplace. And the Apostle Paul says, just when you go to the marketplace, buy whatever you want, but don't ask where it came from. You see, the Apostle Paul has a don't ask, don't tell policy with regard to meat. What you don't know won't hurt you. And so uh, uh, just on, for the sake of your conscience, just buy whatever they're selling there and eat it. That may surprise us because earlier the Apostle Paul explicitly forbade eating in an idol's temple. He called it the table of demons. Even though idols weren't real, certainly idolatry is a demonic practice. It's a rebellious act for the Christian, provoking our covenant God to jealousy. That's why he had such stern warnings in the, in the previous verses. Don't be like the Israelites who tempted Christ. Don't uh, put your own soul in peril eating in the pagan temple. And yet removed from that context, the Apostle Paul has no problem with Christians eating meat offered to idols. It's not the meat per se. It's the circumstances that surround it. And so he says, on the ground of conscience. Now, our conscience, of course, is our moral compass. It gives us a sense of right or wrong. And each of us, uh, some of us may have a more sensitive conscience. Others may have a seared conscience. Some Some of us may have a weak conscience. And those who are the people that the Apostle Paul is particularly concerned with. He mentioned them back in chapter 8. Those who have a weak conscience, those who were recent converts to Christianity, who had uh, engaged in idolatry all of their lives. And for them, if, if they were to partake meat in a temple, they would be led astray in idolatry. They would eat it as if it was sacrificed to idols, as if idols were a real thing. And so the Apostle Paul is telling those people, look, if you want to eat meat, buy whatever is sold in the marketplace, but don't ask where it came from, lest it wound your conscience. Another segment in the church that may have an issue with eating meat offered to idols would be Jewish Christians who were raised eating a kosher diet. They wouldn't think of touching meat that had passed through a pagan temple, and yet Paul can tell them, look, what you don't know won't hurt you. Don't ask, don't tell, 
eat whatever is offered in the marketplace. And to justify what he's saying, he quotes from the Old Testament. In particular, he quotes from Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This was actually a prayer, a a psalm that was used as a prayer of thanksgiving amongst the Jews in Paul's day. Since everything belongs to the Lord, since he made it and created it all and he owns it, then we should give thanks for his provisions. He's sharing the food with us, as it were. And so, boys and girls, that's why it's important for us to give thanks during our meals when we eat. Now, some people pray before a meal. Some people pray after a meal. I say you could pray before, during, and after the meal, giving thanks to the Lord because ultimately that's not your food. It's the Lord's food. And it's, and it's interesting that where the Jews would recite this prayer uh, and yet keep a strict kosher diet, the Apostle Paul expands that. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, expanding it even to meat offered to idols. So there's nothing wrong with the meat. It hasn't been contaminated, as it were. So whether it was a goat or, a, or an ox or a sheep, uh, it belongs to the Lord, and we ought to partake of that with thanksgiving. Paul says something very similar in 1 Timothy 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to, be re- is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so that's uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul's justification for being able to eat this meat offered to idols. Well, in verse 27, he gives yet another scenario. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner. Now, here's a, a, a similar but, relate, uh, but slightly different scenario where it's an unbeliever who is inviting you over to his or her house in order to share a meal. And the Apostle Paul says, look, if you're inclined to go, then go. But don't ask what's on the menu. Don't ask where they got the meat or if it had been sacrificed to idols. Why? Well, once again, for the sake of conscience. See, following Paul's example of being all things to all people, as he described back in chapter 9, he encourages his readers to be like him and to, to, uh, to be a good witness to these unbelievers as those outside the law. He says, I became as, those outside, as one outside the law. And so we ought not to add to the offense of the cross by being overly scrupulous. You can imagine a scenario where an unbeliever invites you know, a, a Christian to come over and, and they would say, well, well, what are you serving? Where did you get your meat? I don't think I can eat that. Well, no, he says, don't ask, just eat whatever is served. You're being polite. Another thing to notice that we may miss in the English here is when the Apostle Paul says, if, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, that you is plural. If Paul were writing in the South, he would say, y'all. Or perhaps one way we can translate it is if if the unbelievers invites some of you to dinner. So in other words, you're not alone in this scenario. You are being accompanied with fellow believers, and therefore we ought to keep the other person in mind. Remember, Christianity is not about you, it's about the other. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says, is, you know, you're still in this scenario. You're at an unbeliever's house with a fellow believer. They, they, they set the main course, and then somebody says, this has been offered to an idol. Now, it's interesting that this is not the same term used in verse 19. 
The term that's used here where it says this has been offered in sacrifice is a term that the pagans would use to describe the, the, the meat that had been offered. And so that's why a lot of commentators think that the informant here is the, pay, is, is the unbelieving host as he serves it. This has been offered to Zeus. Paul says, in that case, don't eat it. In that case, don't eat it. And regardless of whether it was the host, the unbelieving host who informed you that this has been offered, or if it was the, unbelie- or, sorry, the fellow believer who is accompanying you, saying, look, I saw the tag, I saw the label, it was offered to the, you know, in the temple. Regardless of who informs you, because the meat is now explicitly linked to idol worship, even though the meat doesn't change, the circumstances do. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, don't eat it. Well, why? Well, for the sake of the one who informed you. If it was the unbeliever, you wouldn't want to be a bad example. You wouldn't want to let that unbeliever think that you would freely engage in idolatry. And if it was the weaker brother who informed you, you wouldn't want to lead them astray in the same context of chapter 8, that your actions would would, uh, cause them to stumble and fall back into idolatry. Now, some of this may cause our heads to spin. First of all, the Apostle Paul says, in a temple, you don't eat it. In a private residence, you can eat it, as long as no one explicitly informs you or tells you that it is linked to an idol. Maybe some of us might want to just say, Paul, can you just tell us outright whether it's okay to eat meat that has been offered to idols? But here I think we need to appreciate the Apostle Paul's, the, the careful nuance and thoughtfulness of the Apostle Paul. And here I think he highlights the difference of, between what we might call law and what we call wisdom. The law is clear cut. Think about the dietary restrictions in the law of Moses, the kosher diet. Very clear cut. The Jews knew what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. These things were, were good. These things were off limits. Well, now in the New Testament that those things have been done away with, things get a bit more murky. Is it okay to eat this meat that's been offered to idols? Well, the Apostle Paul says yes and no. Uh, the law of God is very clear with regard to idolatry. It's very clear with regard to loving our neighbor as ourself. But what does that look like in everyday life? You see, it takes wisdom to apply the law of God to everyday circumstances. A great example of this is Proverbs 26, which says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But then it goes on to say, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And those of us who like the law would say, well, wait a minute, Solomon, tell us, should we answer a fool according to his folly or not? Solomon says, well, it depends. It depends. It depends on the circumstances. Well, how do we know? Which one? Wisdom. And, and maybe you're sitting here saying, well, you know, I lack wisdom. Well, what does James say? If any of you lack, lack, lacks wisdom, ask of God and he'll give it to you. And we learn wisdom throughout our life. We learn it from his word. And so I just want you to appreciate here, as the Apostle Paul uses uh, what what we call casuistry in a good sense, taking the circumstances into consideration, thinking about others, thinking about what uh, impact it may have. Uh, That's wisdom in order to apply the law of God. Well, getting back to our passage, 
you'll, you'll recall that the Apostle Paul has said three times that we shouldn't do something for the sake of conscience. But it's interesting because he hasn't specified whose conscience he's talking about. And it'd be very easy for some of the readers in Corinth to say, well, look, the, look, Paul, don't worry about my conscience. I don't feel a lick of guilt by eating food offered to idols. Uh, I, that's okay. I'm, don't worry about me. And that's why I think the Apostle Paul needs to clarify what he means in verse 29 when he says, I don't mean your conscience, but the conscience of the one who informed you. Remember, Christianity is not about you. It's about the other. It's the other person that you need to be sensitive to. It's the other person's conscience that you don't want to wound or offend. He, and, and so, uh, you know, you need to be considerate of the weaker brother or the unbeliever. You, you, you want to become all things to all people. Think about their good and not your own. And then that launches, uh, and then the Apostle Paul launches into two rhetorical questions that we see in verse 28 and, or sorry, 29 and 30. Uh, they're rhetorical questions because they're left unanswered which have caused much debate among commentators. What does the Apostle Paul mean when he asks, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? I think the best way to understand these rhetorical questions is to see them as anticipated objections that Paul's opponents might have. So in the same way that the the slogans in verse 23, all things are lawful, are put in quotation marks, here too, I think these two questions ought to be put in quotation marks, so that we would understand it not to be the thought of the Apostle Paul, but the anticipated objections that some in Corinth might have when he tells them, don't eat that meat. So they would say, well, why would someone else's conscience determine my action? It should be my conscience. That's my Christian liberty. If I don't feel bad about it, then I should be able to do whatever I want. And if I give thanks for the food... Right? As long as I say that token prayer before, during, or after the meal, then why am I slandered? Why am I denounced for doing this? See, those are the type of things that the, that the opponents of Paul would, anticip- would say, and Paul's anticipating those. And it's interesting, he just, he just uh, gives voice to those objections, but he doesn't answer them directly. He doesn't answer them directly, but rather in verse 31, He sums up his argument, he reiterates his main points, and in so doing, I think he completely dismantles his opponent's position. He says in verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, all of life, even something as mundane as eating, is done to the glory of God. Now, I love to eat. Some people eat to live. I live to eat. But it, it, it makes dinner something way different than we typically think. We say, well, you got to eat, or, you know, woke up this morning, had a bowl of Cheerios. You do that to the glory of God. Whatever you do, even something as small and ordinary as eating can be done to the glory of God. Even that matters. Similar to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here we see it's much bigger than just meat. It's much bigger than just eating. 
It has to do with loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So everything we do should be done to the glory of God. Uh, Bach, the great composer, at the end of all of his compositions, he would write three letters, S-D-G, which stood for soli deo gloria, which means to, to the glory of God alone. All of our life should have SDG written at the end of it. Everything we do. And then that launches the Apostle Paul then to, in verse 32, where he, in verse 31, he's talking about loving God. In verse 32, he talks about loving our neighbor when he says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. See, loving and glorifying God necessarily entails loving our neighbor. If we live only for ourselves and are inconsiderate of others, we are clearly not bringing honor to God or acting in a Christ-like manner. And so we shouldn't, give a, we shouldn't offend people by seeking our own pleasures. It's interesting, uh, the, the, the people groups that the Apostle Paul lists here, he mentions Jews, he mentions Greeks, and then he mentions the church of God. And in so doing, he encompasses the whole of humanity, Jews, Greeks, and the church, the whole of humanity, both of the present world and of the world to come. I highlighted back in chapter 9 how the Apostle Paul could speak of himself as becoming like a Jew. You might say, well, wait a minute, Paul, aren't you a Jew? But ultimately, he thinks of himself as a new creature in Christ, as a member of the church of God. And so... uh, Technically, no, he doesn't see himself as a Jew. He sees himself as a new creature in Christ. But regardless of who we encounter, we ought not to give offense. So setting himself as an example in verse 33, he says, just as I try to please everyone in everything. This is kind of an unfortunate translation because when we think of a people pleaser, we have negative connotations of that. Somebody who, uh, you know, who, who will vacillate, who, who will do anything to please people and, and even compromise their morals. That's not what the Apostle Paul's saying here. Paul never sugarcoated his message. He never uh, uh, would shrink from the, uh, from the responsibility of telling it like it is. I mean, all you have to do is go back to the opening chapters of this book. Uh, chapter 2 in particular, how he says, you know, I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling to proclaim this message of the cross as offensive as it is. See, what Paul's saying here is that he was accommodating. He was accommodating to, uh, to other people. He was mindful of other people's sensitivities and weaknesses. That's how he, what he describes in chapter nine, uh, verse 19 through 23, where he says, I've become all things to all people. Amongst the Jews, he acts like a Jew, so as not to give offense. Amongst those under the law, he acted like that, uh, or who were uh, were outside the law, he acted as one outside the law. To the weak, he became weak. Why? Well, in order to save some. He says, I do not seek my own good, uh, but uh, my own advantage, but that of the many. Here he's echoing what he said in verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And Paul says, that's what I do. That's how I live my life. Now, it's interesting, the word he uses here, he says, I do not seek my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. You may recall back in chapter 9, previously, Paul said, he became all things to all people in order to save some. And now he tells us what that some is 
by calling them the many. And here, I think, is an unmistakable allusion to Isaiah chapter 53, the song of the suffering servant, speaking prophetically of the work of Jesus Christ. When it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus Christ said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ was saying that he's the suffering servant. This is what our Lord has done for me and for you. He did not come to be served, but he rather laid down his life in order to obtain us as his people. And now he invites us to follow after him. And the Apostle Paul took that call to take up his cross seriously. Following the example of his Lord, the suffering servant who laid down his life for the many, the Apostle Paul freely and regularly gave up his rights in order to save others. And then at the very conclusion of his, of, of, of his writing on the topic of meat offered to idols, which is actually chapter 11, verse 1, in an unfortunate chapter break here, he says, be imitators of me. This is his final exhortation with regard to this topic. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Here I think it becomes extremely clear that this is way more than just the narrow topic of meat being offered to idols. It has to do with how we live our lives and how we treat others. Are we going to seek to please ourselves? Or are we going to seek to please our Lord by offering up our lives as a living sacrifice. That's what the Apostle Paul did, and that's what he calls us to do as, he, as we imitate, all imitate our Lord. And so in conclusion, I'll quote from the exhortation of our Lord in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. May God grant to us the grace to be able to do that as we follow after him with hearts full of gratitude for all that he has done for us. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you were pleased in the fullness of time to be born of woman, to be born under the law in order to live a life of suffering and obedience, in order to offer your blood as a ransom to obtain many people. And we thank you for the privilege we have to belong to that number. And you've given us your spirit, O Lord, and you call us now out of gratitude to take up our cross and deny ourselves. But we confess, Lord, that that is not easy. It is not easy. And so often we seek to please ourselves rather than you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant to us grace. Forgive us for the many times we have fallen short. And help us to take up our cross and follow after you day after day. We ask this in your name. Amen.